This edition of Montgomery Talks Education with Doug Tolman is one of a three-part series called MCPS 2020. For other points of view, be sure not to miss the other episodes. You're listening to Montgomery Talks, the regular podcast from Montgomery Community Media. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter with MCM. I'm here today with Laura Stewart, who's the Vice President of Advocacy for the Montgomery County Council for PTAs. She has children at Richard Montgomery High School and at Sligo Middle School, as well as she's been active in the PTA for seven years. And so, welcome, Ms. Stewart. Thank you. We've been talking to some folks about education for the past couple of weeks. And, of course, one of the big issues about education is County Executive Mark Elridge's budget. It came up $14.5 million short from what the school system wanted. Um, of course, it's $2.9 billion, and if I've done the math correct, it's about one-half of 1% shy of what was requested. So how do you explain to folks on the street that there isn't one-half of 1% in the school budget that can't be cut and that this $14.5 million is really, truly necessary? That's pretty easy to explain because every dollar counts at this point. I talk to parents all the time where they feel like there's just too many kids in the classrooms. Teachers are stressed. Teachers need more support in the classrooms. And there's other priorities that's come up in MCPTA. There's a big push to put more counselors in schools and also mental health professionals. Many think this is an emergency for kids today. So those dollars mean real difference in kids' school lives every day. So I believe starting April 9th, there is opportunity for testimony from our cluster coordinators. And just to explain to you what a cluster coordinator is, because I know a lot of people probably don't realize what that is, but it's a MCCPTA board member who has a high school and all the schools that go up to that high school to have a voice on the board and also a voice in different opportunities for public testimony. So yeah, we'll be pushing for every dollar we can get. So speaking of every dollar, where does Poolsville High School fit in this? That poor community's been asking for a new high school for years. They've seemed to have a greater push in the last year or so to try and get it. Where do they fit in this capital improvements project and do they get the PTA support? They have a voice on the board just like every other area and every other school. We work together. So as an organization, we've asked MCPS to look at the real needs of the kids, the buildings. So what state is the building is, how is it affecting kids? And they have listened to us. So they're coming up with a new way of rating what needs are in the building and how we can target those funds in a way to meet more needs. Because we don't have unlimited dollars. They're called KFIs, Key Facility Indicators. These key facility indicators will go live on the internet in about, I believe, a week, maybe two weeks. And every parent will be able to look at their school and see how different parts of the facility rate in the county. And that will make it very clear to parents about where funds should be targeted. So, of course, every parent wants to fight for their own school. That's what they're supposed to do. (laughs) 
But the system needs to not just listen to the squeaky wheel. So Poolsville has been a squeaky wheel, and that's awesome, and that's what they're supposed to do. And I've been to that school, and I do see it has a lot of problems, and there is need there. I've been to other schools where maybe I've seen even more need, and I've been to other schools that think they have more need than Poolsville, and they don't. So not every parent can get to every school. So how can we build that trust? And putting data out there, public data, in a way that parents can actually sort and look through the numbers and see where their school fits in the picture is really important. So we're actually advocating for more open data. Okay. Well, Poolsville's unique in that it's surrounded by the Ag Reserve, and therefore it's not a community that has the growth surrounding it that can funnel in impact taxes that could also at least support a new school or, or a new addition or whatever. So would those key facility indicators show that, well, pools will maybe at a deficit on a certain area, um, there's a reason for it? The key facility indicators are supposed to show a moment in time what that school needs at that time. So it really has nothing to do with growth in the area or being overcrowded. Now, it might show up in the key facility indicators in a way that's indirect. For instance, if a cafeteria is too small because there are just so many kids. I happen to know that Poolsville Cafeteria is too small and it's very old, so I'm sure that will show up in their key facility indicators. Whereas another school might show that there's inadequate bathrooms because they wear out faster because there's constantly lines. So, Wear and tear on a school will show up in the key facility indicators, and if a school's more overcrowded, usually there's more wear and tear. So those are the kind of things that will show up. Poolsville definitely has need, and I know the Board of Ed has listened to them, and I know that they've been to the school and have taken a look. So hopefully for Poolsville that it will show up what is the real need. And that shouldn't override some other school that has greater need or another school shouldn't override that has less need just because you're able to fill a BOE meeting place and have matching T-shirts and have a campaign because not every school can afford to have a campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the direction we really want to go, and this is MCPTA has been pushing for this kind of system. Okay. About a year ago, the PTA had a scandal is not the right word, but it had its own issues, financial issues. When it's one a of, scandal. Well, <laughs> when one of its uh, financial people walked off with, uh, I forget the sum of money, but for the PTA, it was quite a bit. What's happened since then to prevent it from happening again? Are there any indicators that, I mean, how are you watchdogging it so that it doesn't happen again? And just to throw out, the Parks Foundation is apparently going through its own embezzlement problem, and obviously the everybody knows about the Economic Development Department had its much larger embezzlement. So what is PTA doing with its own issues? You've asked the right person, <laughs> because I chaired the audit committee, and a group of us were asking questions how our finances were being run before that kind of precipitated this coming up. So we reported out of the audit committee after we found all the embezzlement what we could do going forward for best practices. So the first thing we did is required all board members to take financial training that's available on the National PTA website, and every board member has to take the training. We put in safeguards so that we use the online banking system, whereas before we really w weren't using that. 
paper records were coming in, and then someone was able to intercept that paper record and change it with technology. So that can't happen anymore because we have someone that checks online that can't spend the money but takes a look through the electronic records. So that way we always have more than one eye on the bank accounts. We shored up our checks signing procedures. So we've actually done a lot to make sure that someone can't come and just take basically kids' money. It was about 40000 that was taken from MCCPTA, but a whole lot more from local PTAs. This person was also involved with. So what we did for the local PTA is increase their training also and also make sure that they have safeguards in place that's similar to our safeguards. So I, f- I feel really good that we've done a good job of tightening up procedures. Tightening up procedures sounds great, but I, I can just imagine being a, the PTA president or treasurer in the smallest elementary school, and they might get just a few hundred dollars a year, that mm-hmm. it still looks like the amount of training involved may seem it's not worth the effort. And I can just imagine you know, somebody saying, do I really need to go through this training for what little money we get? So the training does not take long. <laughs> it's like 45 minutes. Okay. And uh, it just kind of makes you aware of different ways people, bad actors, can come in and take money. So we also have multiple ways to get training. So you can do it in person. All of our, all, all of our treasures have to go through it. I might have understated a little bit about the time, but it's not a huge chunk of time. They can get more extensive training in person And as long as they sign in, we know that they've done it. You can do it online. You can do it with webinars. And it's good for more than one year. Okay. And you say it was 40,000. How much was it from the individual PTAs? Ballpark, if you don't (sighs) know off the top of your head. At least that much. At least that much. Yeah. And restitution was part of the individual's um, punishment, as I recall. Has any restitution been made yet? We weren't insured, and we went through the insurance process. MCCPTA was made whole. Okay. The local PTA, I'm not 100% if they were made whole, but I believe they were, to the extent they could be. It was a little harder to track what got stolen because it was over multiple years with the local PTA. So what they could, what they found, I believe they were reimbursed. So now any restitution would go to the insurance company. Right, okay. And so we went on a shoestring budget that year and did almost nothing. So now we, now that we have the money back, we can do a little more. We're trying to be thoughtful about that, what we do with the money. Um, you could apply to the $14.5 million that needs to go to... <laughs> uh, that would be about a drop in the bucket, but we can help people advocate. And also, for instance, we have the BOE comes to visit each individual school, so we kind of up the budget of what we can do with, you know, have a better event and have people come, you're welcome. So those are the kind of things that we it's about time for us to take a break. MCM, this is Doug Tolman, senior reporter at MCM, talking with Laura County Stewart. You're listening to Montgomery Talks. Through programs like 21 This Week, Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community.
And we're back at Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'm speaking with Laura Stewart, the vice president for advocacy at, for the Montgomery County Council of PTAs. How big is the MCC PTA? Every year we go up and down a little bit. It's usually between 40 and 45,000 members. We try to get closer to 50, but that's usually where we come in. Okay, and before the break we were talking about the embezzlement. What kind of money does that mean? I mean, people pay dues to be a member of uh, the PTA, correct? Okay. So, so we only get $1 from every dues paying member. We do also get some donations. We do an event in the spring of the year, a celebration of excellence, and we do have businesses donate to help with that, you know, to help with food and different things. So, You're also, well, as the vice president of advocacy, obviously advocacy is a, is a big part of the PTA. We talked a little bit about the budget before. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things will the PTA be doing to try to just advocate for the school system? We do have events through the year where we try to get local officials to come out. In the summer, we have something called um, summer meetings. They're area-based, and we ask local officials to come out so they have an idea of what parents are needing for the next session in Annapolis and in County Council. We also do a legislative reception in the fall to talk about bills coming up. We share information and do training for testimony nights for the BOE. And then we have various committees. We have some really strong committees, especially the committees that deal with mental health and safety issues. They work with MCPS. We work in partnership with MCPS in these committees also. And then we go to Annapolis to advocate for some of the top priorities. As you know, Annapolis is really busy, so to track every single bill in education is pretty hard. But we do have advocacy priorities we vote on at the beginning of the year, and we take a lot of time to sift through that, because you can imagine it's a big county and not everyone has the same priorities, so we try to make it a document that a great majority could get behind all the priorities. So we use that kind of as, a, as our guide to, to know what we need to advocate for in Annapolis. And we sometimes get local PTAs with MCCPTA to come out together to advocate on some issues. So what were your big policy positions for this session? As you know, this session was supposed to be the Kerwin session, right? And it did get scaled back a bit. So we were gearing up for that, for the big Kerwin bill. It wasn't quite as big as we thought it was going to be, but we did come out and testify based on our advocacy priorities. Construction is always a huge issue. The amount of parents and kids that come out and testify in front of the Board of Ed every year, I just, I feel like it gets bigger every year. And I think, was it two nights that lasts from six to 10? And it's just all these wants and needs. So we really need a big construction bill from Annapolis. Just to back up a second, you mentioned the Kerwin Commission. Uh-huh. Define it for the folks on the, who are listening oh. to this. Sure. It's the, I believe it's the Excellence in Education Bill. So what it is, is right now there's a way that the state funds local schools, and it's based on a formula that was made quite a few years ago. And people got together and realized it wasn't really doing the job. So there was a commission that met over 
at least two years now that said, okay, what are we going to do to increase funding for schools and actually target the funding so it improves all kids, including kids that are in poverty, different racial groups, how are we going to close the gap and just go towards you know 21st century education. So, I mean, that's my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. I was not on the committee, but I did watch a couple sessions and I've read about it. Right. And it's named the Kerwin Commission because it's named after Britt Kerwin, who's the former chancellor, I believe, of the University of Maryland system. Yes, that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. I've seen him talk a couple times. He really knows his stuff. I think he's doing amazing work, but it is hard. It is hard to get everyone on the same page. Mm-hmm. So it's a big task. Okay. Today, the legislature overturned Larry Hogan's veto of uh, the bill that would change. Hogan's executive order would have, has started school after Labor Day and end by June 15th. The bill turns that around and lets local control decide when the start and end dates are. Correct. Hogan vetoed that bill, and then that veto has now been overturned. I believe Hogan's plan is to bring that bill to referendum in, I'm going to assume, the 2020 election. I don't think anybody's voting in the 2019. How did the PTA feel about that? We didn't take an official stance because we didn't realize that this bill was going to come up in time for us to get in our advocacy priorities. Although my feeling, if we had brought it up, yes, there would be some people against it, but the great majority of parents I've talked to wants local control back. And some of those people weren't, they weren't for that before his edict that said you had to start after Labor Day. But then they saw how it affected the calendar. So this year, we have a shortened spring break. It's always been, since my kid, my 17-year-old was in kindergarten, we had the whole week off, usually before Easter and Easter Monday. People count on that. They schedule vacations, but they also schedule family time. They schedule college visits. That is the most popular time for college visits. And this year, it starts, I believe, on Wednesday. So they don't get the whole week off. To tell you the truth, a lot of kids won't be at school at the first of that week because parents probably still wanted to schedule their normal spring break activities. So I did my own (laughs) very unscientific poll, which is funny because I went to the Annapolis hearing where I heard Hogan's people were there and they testified and this one guy said he did a poll in Annapolis that said, oh, will people here overwhelmingly support school after Labor Day? Well, I did my own unscientific poll on Facebook and in my friend group, it was 85% for local control. So, you know, it just shows you how people travel in their own circles. But in Montgomery County, people really valued spring break and they were not happy that you had to choose between Jewish holidays and spring break. I just don't think it's viable in Montgomery County to not have the Jewish holidays off. So next year, nothing's gonna have to be changed. The BOE could have scrapped the calendar for next year, but this the way every year works out differently and next year works out okay. I think there's spring break even, and they can start after Labor Day because of where Labor Day lands. But in 2020, it was going to be horrible because guess what happens? Election. So you need an extra day off, and Labor Day falls later in September. So just getting that year back local control makes a huge difference. 
So what happens after that? We'll see. But that's what I've heard from parents. Okay. You mentioned before about a committee for safety, and I wanted to ask you about safety. What exactly is the PTA doing to try to improve student safety? We keep seeing these headlines. Granted, some of them are across the country. The worst aren't happening here, but I'm sure every parent is scared to death every time they see a headline. When will it happen here? So what kinds of things can the PTA do? We advocated pretty strongly to get the safety uh, vestibules in every school. They're not in every school, so let me explain what that is. There's a door, a front door you go in, and if you have a security vestibule, there's another set of doors in front of you. And on the side will be a door to an office. So you would go in, you would get buzzed in, the doors in front of you would be locked, (laughs) and you would have to go through the office and sign in. So not every school has that system right now because It's a building issue, right? So we got federal money a few years ago, and there was quite a few vestibules built at our local elementary school. They put one in, but not all of them were feasible because sometimes the office isn't right by the front door. So there's significant construction that needs to be done, and parents strongly advocated for that. So in this budget, there's extra money put in for those security vestibules. I think it's $28 million. Also, parents have advocated for just stronger safety measures that would help kids get the mental health, because mental health goes together with safety. So the mental health support for kids is something we're really advocating for. So we can stop anything getting to the point where a kid just feels so desperate that they feel they have to do something extreme. The school is about to undertake a boundary study? Yes. It seems as though at least the students who have testified are well in favor of this. They want to see more diverse schools. They want to attend more diverse schools. I've talked to a number of parents, however, who are worried about the notion of a neighborhood school, that if boundary study sounds an awful lot like it's just a lot more syllables, but it looks and smells like busing, which they probably remember at least seeing the headlines as a kid, and may destroy the fact that, you know, I think they're scared to death that their, na- their, their, their kids won't go to school with their neighbor's kids. So where's the PTA on this, and what should people do? So there's not always exact 100% consensus on these issues. Although in our advocacy parties, we did put in there that we want and value diverse schools. There's nothing about busing in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's busing and then there's busing, okay? So I grew up in Prince George's County in the 80s, and that was busing, like far away kids, you know, in a totally different community busing in. When we talk about boundary studies, really, they're looking at adjacent clusters, Okay, so what can you do that's not busing across the county? You're not gonna have kids from Springbrook busing to Whitman. This will never happen. So first of all, the BOE needs to make sure that people understand what the scope of this will be. And so right now the BOE and MCPS are having community feedback sessions. I think they just announced four new ones. I don't have the dates yet. They also are having feedback sessions when the BOE visits the clusters, and they visit each cluster once every four years or four or five years. For instance, Einstein High Schools is happening on April 11th, and they are having a boundary study feedback session. And this is all about the scope. So the scope can include, in my opinion, and this is what I would advocate for, and I think most parents would be for this, 
is to have some kind of uh, guideline when it comes to buses. You know, the average time you'd be on the bus should be X amount of minutes and no more. And the boundary study is a, has to do with diversity, and that's what the kids are really focused on. But really, it's about using our facilities in a fiscally responsible manner. I just saw a very pretty GIS, I don't know what you call it, it's not a chart, but a GIS program that showed a lot of schools that are overcrowded by like 200 students less than three miles away from another school that has 200 seats. So what this boundary study could do is look, where can we take advantage of our facilities? We don't have unlimited dollars. And to just continually build addition after addition when there's room in a school nearby, how can we use that more effectively? And yes, people want their neighborhood schools. So this is why I feel like choice should be a part of the process. So this is why I feel personally, based on what I've seen and based on what you've seen, the, the kids are for diversity, the parents are like, no, I want my, I want my school. So maybe, you know, you could have both. So you can choose to go to your neighborhood school or you could go to this specialized program that's only, let's say, three to five miles away in a school that has room. There could be a coding school. My kid, even in elementary school, like he probably would have enjoyed that in fourth and fifth grades. Not every parent would want their kids on a computer mm -hmm. spending time in elementary school on that. So there's could be art schools. I mean, there's ways, I feel like that there's ways to do this so you don't feel as heavy-handed. Although there's a lot of parents that feel like you should just look at boundaries on a regular basis. And other systems do this. And so, again, being fiscally responsible and also look at diversity and mix of kids. And just know, okay, every, let's say six years, everyone knows in Montgomery County, you're gonna go through a boundary study and it's just a given. So those are a couple ways you could look at it. I don't know what will happen, but the boundary study could help inform the contractors to, to look at this maybe in multiple ways and then we can have options. Okay, um, actually one last question. I asked this of just about everybody in the school system and that's the achievement gap. This county's been talking about the achievement gap for, I know, 20 years, if not 30 or 40. And it seems as though for all the talk, not a whole lot has changed. Children of color do not perform as well as white kids and Asian kids for all the effort to try to make. Now, Dr. Smith is new-ish. Ish. <laughs> and he's got ideas on how to, how to attack this. The PTA has seen superintendents come and superintendents go. What is your role in trying to improve the achievement gap? Do you have a role? And if Montgomery County can't solve the achievement gap problem, what jurisdiction in Maryland can? I think we have a ways to go. I think there's room for improvement. Are you going to get to where everyone's gonna be happy? I don't know. I think that should be the goal is to close the achievement gap. We can do better than what we're doing. So yeah, we have, PTA has a role in that for sure. This is a subject a lot of parents are concerned about. And we want to see, hopefully the current commission can help provide targeted funding to help with this too. The achievement gap needs to be looked at with clear eyes. You know, everything needs to be out in the open and on the table. And there's something called the accountability dashboards and that will also be going live from MCPS in the next week 
where every school will be able to go on a dashboard and see where are the kids in poverty, where are they performing, the white and Asian kids versus, actually, they're not doing it white and Asian, they're doing all other, that's how they're putting it out there. So there's black, Hispanic, and then all other, farms and non-farms. So you can see each of those groups on your dashboard. Again, we're advocating for this to be as transparent as possible. So we would also like some kind of database in the future. So you can look at different schools with different amount of poverty and see trends, et cetera. Like parents in Montgomery County are really smart. And they love making these graphs and seeing trends and to help advocate, to help the system get where they want to be. So. Eventually, MCPTA would like to see that too. But right now, we're just really thankful that all of this will be out in the open so we can see exactly where you need to target. And so where you see red on this dashboard is where the emergencies are going to be. And I've already asked, I'm like, so what, and this is how we can advocate. When red shows up, what will central office do about that? Like you can't just have, and red would be, I believe if 30% of kids did not meet two of three measures, 30%, not didn't meet, but the other way around. So if 70% didn't meet, then even 30% failed. I wouldn't like to say fail, but didn't meet expectations, right? So anyway, what are they gonna do about it? So that, that's where we can advocate, say, just to make sure that they're really focusing resources on where the real need is. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. We've been speaking today with Laura Stewart, Vice President for Advocacy with the Montgomery County Council of Potomac Parent <laughs> Teacher Associations. Okay. You only think it's Potomac because you see a lot of Potomac parents out advocating, yeah. but we have parents from all over to come advocate. It's okay. just that sometimes you see a lot of Potomac parents and good for them. Okay. So. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Thanks. Don't miss the other podcasts in the Montgomery Talks Education MCPS 2020 series featuring Superintendent Jack Smith and Montgomery County Education Association Vice President Jennifer Martin. Our engineer today was Vinny Saragino. Our executive producer is Gaynell Evans. I'm Doug Tolman. Join us next time on Montgomery Talks. Mm-hmm.